All right, let's go ahead and take out our Bibles. Let's dive into God's Word together. We are going to be studying three stories once again today. I'm going to go ahead and have you open up to Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. It's page 814, if you have one of the Bibles in our sanctuary here. 814, just open up to that passage, put a little marker in there, and set it on your lap. We're going to close with that passage Um, The first two stories are interwoven, but we're going to be doing them in a combo account of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that's going to be up on the screens. You can follow along with me, but I want to begin with just a few thoughts. We are on part 37 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, Do You Believe? And I want to talk about the issue of faith. Faith has been misunderstood and misrepresented in the church as long as church has been around. One of the reasons why is because the Bible uses faith in a bunch of different ways. It'll say, do you have faith? Then it will say, are you of the faith? And it has a bunch of ways that it refers to it. And you go, well, I don't quite know what you mean. Mostly, when it says, do you have faith? It's rather simple. Do you trust the nature of God. That is simple. Do you trust what God says, and despite whatever else may be circumstance, do you believe it? Do you hang on to it? So that is simple. How it happens is complicated. How it works out, how we do it, how we engage with it, how we see it theologically, that's where stuff starts getting complicated. But as far as the simple concept of what is faith, Faith is simply this, trust and confidence. It's trust and confidence in someone or something. It is not just a magical force out there that you need more to harness better and somehow you can draw it to yourself. It is not some universal concept that if you only had more access to the universal power, you can get stuff to do. That is not right. Okay, that may be the secret. Y'all remember that secret book? That's garbage, right? I don't like that at all. That's not biblical whatsoever. It's this concept that if you harness the forces of the universe, you can make things and bend them to your will. That is where we've slipped out of biblical faith, and we're now into some type of magic, and that's not exactly where we're going to be camping. Biblical faith means you have faith in someone or something. Now, Christian faith means you have faith in God, right? You have faith in his word. That's what faith is all about. Now, I was reading a little bit uh, earlier this week in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, great book. He talked about faith. And he said this, he said, you know, when I first became a Christian, I was always lost when everyone kept talking about uh, faith like a virtue, Man, did you grow in faith? You got to grow in faith. Do you have faith? All this stuff. And he's like, you know what? I didn't understand that because coming as an atheist, I was thinking faith is believing facts. If you got the facts, you believe it and trust in it. If the facts aren't there, you discard it. I didn't understand how that could be a virtue. How can I, how can that be something that's godly when it's just a fact? Hey, hey, if the chair's going to hold up, I'm going to believe that it's going to hold me up. Great. If not, I'm going to forget it. But then he said this, I was assuming that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some reason for reconsidering turns up. In fact, 
I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. He actually tells a story, it's really cute, about the idea that he knows by fact that when he goes to the doctor under anesthesia, he's fine. But he panics every time, right? It doesn't, it's not a matter of the facts. It's a matter of how he feels about it. And every time he locks up under it, despite the facts. Then he goes on to say this. It is not reason that takes away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It's actually my imagination and my emotions. There will come a time when all at once a Christian's emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his beliefs. Now faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. That's why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they can get off, you can neither be a sound Christian or a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs dependent on the weather and the state of their digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. For some of us, we keep saying, man, I, you know, I feel like when I was in church, I was all pumped up and I totally believed and then I got home and it seems like I don't, I don't know, I keep getting all these doubts. That's what he's talking about. You'll look at something and you'll analyze it and you'll say, this is true about God. I'm locked in about God. I believe God. I have confidence in God. And then your emotions blitz it and attack it. And then all of a sudden you're going, I don't know what I believe anymore. That's not reason. That's emotion. That's mood. So what we're trying to do is say, listen, you have to realize we are emotional beings. We have moods that go up and down. So what do we need to do? Continually have the truth in front of us. Continually have it before us. Continually be reminded of it. That's how we stay locked in to what is real. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Faith is confidence in what God said. Faith is confidence in what God said. If God says, I want you to take that territory, then you can take that territory. For example, God said, I'll be with you and I'll fight for you. Yet they sent out 12 spies. Only two of them came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, we can do it. They had faith that if God says it was going to happen, it was going to happen. It didn't matter what the circumstances were facing them. The other 10 guys only saw the circumstances. They reassessed God's voice and shut it down. Here's where I found faith is a problem for the believer. Now, for the non-believer, this is easy. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then none of this stuff makes sense. You're not going to have faith in any of it. I get it. But if you're a Christian, what I've found is it's not that Christians tend to doubt the power of God. They're just not sure what to be confident in that he said. So, for example, you're going to go and you're going to pray over somebody. And you go, well, wait a second. What, am I, what did God say about this particular person's healing? How am I supposed to know whether I'm supposed to have faith in my prayer or not? I mean, what if God doesn't want them healed? Well, what if God wants them healed? Well, what if I don't know what he said, how can I be confident in what he said? Therefore, I believe that the most critical issue perhaps facing the church today is hearing God and understanding his word. Once we know what he said, 
we can lock on what he said. A lot of us just don't even know what he said, and that becomes a problem. Why don't we go ahead and dive right into our scripture. Let's throw the first one up on the screen. We have two stories interwoven together. So it's hard to pull them apart, so I kind of just did a combo account of the entire scenario all together through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it begins like this. And when Jesus had crossed again or returned in the boat to the other side, you remember last time we talked, if we're following that chronology, we had naked demon guy on the Gentile side. We're now back over on the Jewish side, and a bunch of people are all fired up. Jesus is back. He's super popular on that side. The last side kicked him out. This side wants him back. All right, so he shows up. A great crowd gathered about him and welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And he was beside the sea. While he was talking and saying these things to them, behold, seriously, check this out, yeah? There came a ruler named Jairus, who was one of the rulers of the synagogue. All right, why is that a behold? Because there's no way these two guys should be in the same statement. What is a synagogue ruler? Well, the Jewish church in town is called a synagogue. And the way that it would work is they didn't have one pastor. They actually had different speakers rise up in the community and share. Well, who's going to organize that? The synagogue ruler. And then they had facilities that needed to be cared for. Who's going to take care of that? The synagogue ruler. As a matter of fact, because it was so heavy solid orthodox judaism most of the synagogue rulers it's believed were pharisees so you now have a pharisee who runs orthodox judaism in that town and he's coming up to talk to jesus that's weird because the pharisees didn't know what to do with jesus they were still convinced this guy may be a wacko they don't everyone keeps saying he might be the son of god they're not sure whether or not he's a heretic and they're not cool with him at all and now their key guy is about to address Jesus. That has everybody unsettled. Because he's kind of representing them, and they don't want him to. Well, this is what happens. And seeing Jesus, he knelt before him. Uh-oh. Saying, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come to my house and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. How did he know about Jesus? You go, well, Jesus is pretty popular. I mean, a lot of people have told stories. That's true, and it could just be that. But we also realize that back in chapter 4, Jesus cast a demon out of a guy in a synagogue. Guess whose synagogue that was? Jairus's. How did he feel about the whole casting out a demon right in the middle of church? That's probably weird. So he's like, I don't know, maybe this guy is in the cahoots with the demons. I don't know if he's legit. I don't know what's happening here. And he probably had a lot of thoughts, and then his, da his daughter got sick. Well, suddenly he started to think a little bit differently, huh? What's intriguing is when he kneels before him, that is a sign of respect. And all the other friends and Pharisees are like, what in the world are you doing? We don't bow before this guy. But he pressed through the pressure of his friends and the whole entire societal pressure and said, I have to get next to Jesus. Why? Desperation will make you do weird things. Yeah? There's no way in the world he should have been there. But when your little girl's going to die, what are you going to do? Pretty much anything that you can. 
That's how it works. Desperation will test your theology, yeah? That we can sit, when everything's going well, we can all argue about what we believe and what we don't believe and all this other stuff. But the minute it becomes crucial, the minute everything hits the fan, you're going to know what you truly believe. Because you'll start doing things you didn't think you would ever do. Suddenly lines are crossed because you're going, wait a second, do I really believe that? Or do I even care about that stuff? Am I really against that? What is happening? And then we rush towards trying to find Jesus. Now, sometimes that can lead us astray, but a lot of times it can lead us to understand what we're really believing or not. Desperation will break you right through taboo and get you to what you need to do sometimes. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that a lot of us are even here because we came out of desperation, right? Here's the other thing that I need you to realize. The girl was how old? 12 years old. I want you to lock that in your mind. Uh, Jews, as they're watching it, would go, oh, she's just about to become a woman. Because in their culture, a 12-year-old girl is right when the parents start to arrange her marriage. So for them, they're like, oh, she was just about to thrive in society, and now all of a sudden she's going to die. That's terrible. But I need you to remember the 12. Let's keep moving. It says, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Let's pause right there. What he could have said was, Aren't you Jairus? Right. Aren't you the guys that are constantly talking about me behind my back? Yeah. So I'm not going anywhere with you. Here's the deal. You're all a bunch of jerks, and I'm not dealing with that. He could have said that. He could have held this whole thing of, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Why do you want me now? All right? You didn't want me before, but now you want me. He could have played all those games and been defensive and all those things, but he didn't. There was none of it. Here's what he heard. A dad said, my little girl's hurting. And he said, all right, where are we going? That was it. Christ's compassion is so extreme, it blows right through all that other garbage, right? Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And as Jesus went, a great crowd followed him and the people thronged and pressed about him. That is the same phrase that is used in the parable of the seed sown and it's choked out by the weeds. The phrase is choked out. So Jesus is walking. He's so popular. The crowd's so big, they're choking him out. They're literally crushing him. And you go, well, that's kind of extreme. Not really. Have you ever been to the ancient Middle East area? The roads are so narrow because they're not built for cars. They're built for walking. And they were built when things were much lower in population. They had no idea they're going to be trying to jam all these people through the city. So the narrow roads, when you start getting a massive crowd, all of a sudden becomes a serious problem. So they're crushing in on Jesus. The disciples are probably doing the bodyguard thing, trying to push everybody back and give him some space. Because everybody wants to touch him. Everybody wants to see him. Everybody wants to hear what he's saying. So they're all trampling each other to get close to him. That's how popular he was. And behold, here we go again. Seriously, check this out. There was a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for how long? 12 years. Are we tracking on this? We got two ladies, 12 years. Watch what happens. A discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians. And though she had spent all her living, all that she had on physicians, she was no better, but rather grew worse. She could not be healed by anyone. Is Jesus including this to slam on doctors? 
Is that what he's trying to do? Is he trying to say I'm anti-medicine? Oh, you know what? She went to the doctors. Those losers all messed up. She only would have been with me, right? Not at all. One of the gospel writers' name is Luke. What does he do for a living? He's a doctor. Okay, so we don't have the medicine doctor animosity. Why is this included in here? It's to highlight how severe her condition was. It has nothing to do with reflecting on medicine. You're going to find out at the end of the story, Jesus is actually pro-taking care of ourselves and medicine. But we'll get to that in a moment. Let's understand this woman's issue. She has bleeding internally. We don't know why. Was that some type of utero hemorrhage? Was that? We don't know. But we do know that it would probably have been scary. If you're bleeding for 12 years, you probably have a consistent fear in the ancient world that you're going to die. So she probably has a ton of fear about it. It's super uncomfortable. It's really inconvenient. And because we know that the body can't lose a flow of blood for 12 years and make up for it, it was probably on, off, on, off, on, off. And so there was a lot of disappointment involved, right? It was maybe I'm better. No, no, I'm not. Maybe I'm better. No, I'm not. There was a lot of stuff around there. Not only was her condition terrible, but it happened in ancient Jewish culture. Is that a problem? Yeah, that's a problem. Why? Leviticus 15 says that when a woman has a bodily discharge of blood, that's menstrual, she is unclean for a certain amount of days. What happens if it never stops? You are eternally unclean until the bleeding stops. She will be unclean for 12 years. What's the problem with being unclean? Anyone you touch is unclean. Anything you touch is unclean. Your entire house is unclean. No one will come to your house. You're not allowed to go to anybody else's house. As a matter of fact, no one's allowed to get around you. Here's what makes it worse. You're not allowed to go to synagogue. You're not allowed to go to temple. You can't even go into the religious institution to feel better. You can't go in for prayer. You can't go in around the people. You are completely isolated. You're a pariah. Add all that. She's broke, destitute, no more money, spend it all. Okay, are we all clear on how bad this woman's situation is? When you get this desperate, what are you willing to do? Whatever it takes. Watch how she handles this. She heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd. That's like she's doing like a stealth operation, right? She comes up behind him in the crowd and touched the fringe of his garment. Now, what is that? The male Jews wore a robe. And they would wear four blue tassels on the bottom corners. The blue tassels were representative of the law. And it meant, I'm a legitimate Jew and I belong to God. Well, Jesus wore those. She wanted to go get just to touch those. Now, that's pretty extreme faith. Man, I don't even need to touch the dude. I just need to touch the hem of his garment. I mean, if I could even just get a little bit of that magic off that guy, I'm okay. She doesn't know Jesus. She doesn't know anything about the guy. She's heard reports that he's a miracle worker. So she wants to get next to miracle worker guy. So she's thinking this. If I can sneak in through the crowd, grab a little touch on his clothes, bam, I'm healed. I'm out of there. Five minutes tops, right? So she's like synchronizing her watch, dun, 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 you know, and she's got that, she's like flying down. She's trying to get in and get out. Well, it didn't exactly go that way. 
It says this, for she said to herself, if I only touch even his garment, I will be made well. There's a bunch of us in here that don't think that even if Jesus laid his hands on us, we would be healed. Well, this woman's like, hey, I don't even need to touch the guy. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. The flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. What did she feel? I have no idea. You're like, well, she knew that the blood stopped. Hold on. I don't think the blood was continually flowing. This could have been a time when the blood wasn't even flowing at all. She would have no idea if she's healed based on the blood. What did she feel? Was it possible that she felt the power of God move into her and she was like, something's different. I know for sure. I just touched that dude. Everything blew up. I'm like, what in the world? I'm healed. Now that's a big deal. She's like, I got what I wanted. I got to get out. Yeah. All right. Do you realize that when everyone's crowding around him, everyone she touched is now unclean. She better get out of there without anyone finding out about it because she just ruined synagogue for everyone. No one's allowed to go to synagogue this week because she completely screwed it up. So she's scared out of her mind. It says, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who is it that touched my clothes? When all denied it, Peter, his disciple, said, Master, you see the crowds surround you. They're pressing around in on you. And yet you say, who touched me? In other words, that's a dumb question. But Jesus said, no, somebody touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. What does that mean? Is this battery Jesus? Just go, and all the lights flicker. And then he's kind of walks slower, you know? Is that what happens? No. No, here's a couple things that we can be sure of. Number one, the power of God never diminishes, all right? So the Father is moving through him in power. The Father, it's not like he's like, oh, great, you just took my power. Now I can't heal Bob. Fantastic, woman. I had it all organized. I was going to heal Bob, then Frank, then Mary, and you completely hijacked it. Can't believe you did that. There's no concern about God's power running out. That's not the concern. So what power went out? Now, was it exhausting to Jesus to do ministry? We're pretty clear that's true. Did it take something out of him emotionally? I don't know. Here's what's intriguing. He felt something physically that when he, that woman was healed, he knew it. What was that? I don't know, but he calls it out out loud and says something just happened. Now, here's the other things that are interesting. He said, who touched me? Does Jesus not know? Of course Jesus knows. But did Jesus know she was coming up and was going to touch him? That I don't know. Whether or not the Father was moving through him or he was initiating it, I don't know. It's possible that the Father was going, hey, son, real quick, oh, behind you, boom, got her. Anyway, move on, right? It was, <laughs> I mean, it's possible that the Father was moving power through him and the whole time all these things were going on, Jesus would just be made aware of them. And he's like, hey, whoa, 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 what, what happened there? That wasn't on my agenda, right? And the father's like, yeah, I had to slip that one in on you. It's very possible because a lot of that stuff happens when things aren't planned out and organized. But I can tell you this, the minute she touched him, I know he knew who it was. So why does Jesus ask questions? Usually to get the other person to admit to something. He's trying to get their attention and when he said, who touched me, it just stopped her whole mission impossible plan. 
right? You're not going anywhere when Jesus calls you out. Uh-oh, that's not what she wanted. Here's the last major thing about that piece that I think is fascinating. How many people touched him that day? Uh, billions. They're all of them. I mean, everybody was touching. Why? Because he was being choked out. I think we just read that story. He's being crushed. Everybody's touching him all the time. How many people got healed? Well, none of them. Only that woman. Well, that's weird. You're, and you go, well, they didn't have any needs. Really? Seriously, if I said right now, everyone stand up that has any need at all, we have 98% of you all standing up, and then there's 2% that are diluted. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And you're just like, no, I'm good. Okay, whatever. I'm praying for you about that now. <laughs> Something's wrong with you. So yeah, we all have needs. You know, and the minute I start mentioning it, you're like, well, now my neck hurts, right? I mean, it's that kind of thing. We always have needs. So everyone else that touched him, what? They didn't, they didn't get healed. Why not? Why just that woman? Well, that is where you see the power of faith come in matched with the Father's will. There's other people that had faith there. They didn't get healed. Because it wasn't right. It wasn't the right timing. The father goes, and now, boom, strike, and she's good. Everyone else was touching him all the time. It's not the magical touch. It wasn't the magical formula. It was that the father said, we're on. And that's how it goes. And that's hard for some of us to understand. But our father's looking out for our best. He knows what's right. He's sifting and sorting. But man, when that woman got healed and everyone else touched him, they probably got a lot of disappointment. You know what I mean? Oh, great. Okay, so she got healed. That was awesome. I was here for that too, but guess not my day, right? Where is he on his way to? Heal a little girl, yeah? How irritated is that, Dad? Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. We're stopping? Why are we stopping? What do, you, what do you mean we're stopping? Somebody touched you. Oh, I get it. Can we just keep moving, please? My daughter is on the edge of dying. If we do not hurry, she's going to die. You can imagine his tension. Jesus isn't done, and Jesus looked around. That word in Greek means an intense, penetrating look. So now he's got his laser eyes. He's scanning the crowd, right, looking around to see who had done it. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. Jesus turned and saw her, and she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed and told him the whole truth. Did that take guts? You can imagine the groan from the audience. Okay, so I'm, I'm bleeding internally, and I just... I, and was like, great. Seriously? You walked past me. Now you messed me up. And everyone's mad at her. And she's like, hold on, hold on. And so I had to go be with Jesus because he's the only one. And I know I totally got healed right there. That's gutsy. Do you realize this is the woman doing this? Women were not highly valued in the ancient Middle East. And so this woman has some serious desperation and guts and bravery and courage to blast through that whole group of people and publicly address them. That just doesn't happen. And she's touched a rabbi. Oops, not supposed to do that. What was he going to say? What if he would have said, ew? <laughs> that would have been a bummer. He said to her, take heart, daughter. That's an affectionate term. Take heart, daughter. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Your faith has saved you. The word made well and saved are the same exact words in Greek. Your 
faith has saved you. And instantly the woman was made well. A <laughs> couple interesting things about that. Why did Jesus call her out? She got healed. When she's done, she's still healed. Why not just let her go? Why not just go, hey, you know what? I totally saw that. And give her a little wink, right? Eh? Eh? You know. You know, you and I know. Okay. No. There's none of that. He was like, hold up. Everybody shut down for a second. Hold on. Excuse me. What had happened? Well, I touched you because I'm hemorrhaging. And? Right? I mean, it's like she has to tell the whole story. Why would he do that? Is that being mean? No. That's compassion. Why? Because she needed more than just to be healed of 12 years of bleeding. Remember, Jesus can heal with a thought. If he ever says anything, does anything, better take notice of that because something else is going on. He wanted her to look him in the eye and go, hey, hon, real quick, I'm not a magic eight ball. I'm not a fancy little rub genie thing. You don't just touch me and get healed. I'm your Lord. I see you. Look me in the eyes. I love you. Do you see who I'm walking with? I'm walking with this guy named Jairus. Do you know where we're going? He is completely freaked out about his daughter. Guess what my father thinks of you? Kind of the same way. So this whole game about you're going to live your life alone and you've been abandoned and if you could just run and touch me and then go back to your life of emptiness, that's not going to work. I need you to understand, not only do I love you, but I want you to be whole. I don't want you just healed. I want you whole. And so I need you to go through this process with me. I need to make you uncomfortable right now because I'm doing a deeper healing than you can ever imagine. Now, in front of everyone, I've affirmed you. I've told everyone you're clean already, so we don't have to play that game anymore. And you're healed of your disease. So, in my opinion, now you're saved. Good enough. Have a wonderful day. And he lets her go. That's the compassion of our Christ. Yeah? Pretty powerful. What I want to avoid consistently is this faith trap. How do I highlight to you that faith is important, but it's not everything, right? I mean, because we tend to only want to put things in categories. We go, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. God's going to do what God's going to do. So it doesn't matter whether I have faith or not. And this whole faith game, that's stupid and blah, blah, blah. Faith matters. How do I know that? In Nazareth, it says Jesus could not do any great work there because of their lack of faith. It will shut down what God's doing. The disciples said when they couldn't cast out a demon, how come we couldn't cast it out? And Jesus said, because you don't have enough faith. Does it matter? Yeah, it does. Does faith matter? Absolutely. Is it the only thing that matters? No. As a matter of fact, there's a whole series of stories where Jesus heals and one person doesn't even know who he is. There's no faith there. Then sometimes he heals a paralytic because of the faith of his friends. Not even his. Then there's a woman who comes to him and says, my daughter's at home, demon-possessed, and the daughter has no faith at all, and God heals through the mom. So is it everything? No, it's not everything. Does it matter? Yes, it matters. Why? Because faith brings about the glory of God, and the whole purpose of a miracle is the glory of God. There is no point in doing a miracle when everyone's just going to go, that's a coincidence. What glory does God get from a coincidence? If you have no faith and something happens, you will re-reason it out in your mind, excuse it away, and steal all the glory from God. That's not going to work. 
Because whether or not you're healed or whether or not you're sick is not your ultimate problem. Your ultimate problem is your relationship with God. If it's not growing and being built through this process, we've failed. Faith matters. And you go, well, is it because, so she's the only one that had the magic faith and so everyone else didn't? No, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is she believed and it got her next to Jesus. That's important. In order to please God, you have to believe that he exists, yeah? I mean, that's kind of how it works. Faith is hanging on and going, no, 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 I know you're real. I know, I believe you. And charging in there. God is so sovereign, he not only can decide who gets healed, but he can decide how they get healed. You know what I mean? And sometimes he may go, you know what? I'm not healing you without faith being increased. And you're like, well, that's mean. No, it's not mean. It's practical. Because here's the deal, I'm not going to heal you without faith because we aren't together on this. You're, you think of me as a genie and we're not going to leave it there. So, no, I'm not healing you without faith. That's not going to work. I need you to connect with me. And then other times you're like, I have a ton of faith. What about all those other people that had faith and they didn't get healed? That's kind of how it goes. Because the father goes, that's not best. Why would I hurt you by healing you? Well, how can that hurt? I need... No, I know what you need. I'm your dad. I got it, right? This is very hard because it puts all the things into the hands of God. And then we end up guessing a lot, huh? It's tough, but it's how things really are. Let's keep moving forward. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Why trouble the teacher any further? Falling at Jesus' feet, the ruler of the synagogue implored him earnestly, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. What about distractions to your faith? What about when you hear something that just drops your heart out? He had a choice right there, yeah? I mean, he could have just walked away. Hey, Lord, I appreciate your time. We didn't make it under the wire. We totally got hijacked by the woman over there with the bleeding thing. Didn't fly. You know what, Lord? I don't want to take up any more of your time. I'm out. Is that what we're going to do? This guy was too desperate and believed too much to give up. And he's like, forget that. I'm still going. Falls at the feet of Jesus and says, I don't care how desperate it is. I think you're bigger than that. And he cried out, please heal my little girl. You can do this. You know, do you realize that, look at the next line. Let's look at the next line and then I'll point it out. Jesus, on overhearing what they said, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. Do you realize that Jesus' rope is longer than ours? What do I mean? Lord, I'm at the end of my rope. Well, I'm not at the end of mine. They come to him, and they're like, she's dead. And he's like, and? I'm sorry, I'm failing to hear the problem. What's that? You're like, no, 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 like, seriously, she's She's dead. No, I, I heard you. I speak the language. <laughs> I just don't agree with you. I don't think that's a big deal. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and wailing loudly and mourning for her. But he said, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Go away. Do not weep. For the girl's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him to humiliate him, knowing that she was dead. They're like, no, dude, we're at a funeral. She's pretty dead. 
And they're making fun of him. And he's like, no, she's sleeping. There's two words in Greek for sleeping. One word just means sleeping, usually. And the other word is used for sleep and death because that was a common metaphor. He didn't even use that word. He used the sleeping word, the sleeping only word. Why would he do that? Because he's trying to make a deeper point. He's saying, let me explain how things work when you die. And they didn't know this yet. But he's like, let me explain this. When you die, your spirit is in the presence of God. If you are a son and daughter of God, that's just how it works. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you die, the next thing you know, you are in the presence of God. That's how it works. However, your body has to hang in there for a while. Why? The Bible says that our bodies are resurrected at the return of Jesus. Therefore, your body goes night-night, but you don't. It is not soul sleep, it's a delay process. Your body will be glorified. Now, as far as you're concerned, the only part of you that you feel like really matters, that spirit is right there with Jesus in his presence. However, your body has a pause. Then it's reunited, and then all of a sudden we're glorified, and then we're moving forward. So in a sense, there is a sleep issue, but it's not permanent and has nothing to do with the real you. So we can call that sleep, we can call it anything we want, and Jesus did. It says this, but he put them all outside. All the people that were making fun of him and didn't believe and all that stuff, is your faith level such that you just make fun of anything that has to do with God and so you're excluded? Notice he didn't try to convince them. Hey, you guys, come on in here. Check this out. He's like, no, you're done. Bye-bye. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not playing games with you. I'm not going to prove myself to you. If you don't want to be here, don't be here. See ya. That was his view. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi. Uh, what it is, is the feminine form of a little lamb, also used for little kids. So it's little girl, and then it means get up, arise. And it's nice that the, it's translated actually by the um, gospel writer. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And her spirit returned. Where was it? Well, with the father. And so it was like, hun, you got to go back. Sorry. She's like, seriously? Okay. Anyway. And her spirit returned. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And her parents were immediately overcome with excitement or amazement. That word in Greek means they were out of their minds. And he directed that something be given her to eat, but he strictly charged them to tell no one what had happened, that no one should know this. And the report of this went through all the district. Great. <laughs> that pretty much happens all the time. A couple of things that you need to know about this. One of my favorite parts about this is the phrase for the little girl to get up. Why? Later on, Peter uses, and he says, Tabitha, that was the gal's name. He said, Tabitha Kumi. So you're going, oh, so it's a magic phrase. So you, if you want to raise anybody from the dead, you've got to use a little magic phrase. No, it has nothing to do with it. Here's what it means. It's the same exact phrase that every mom in the Mideast would say to her little girl to get up in the morning. It was simply, hey, honey, come on, let's go. It's time to get up. That was it. So how hard is death for Jesus? Uh, not at all. He's like, hey, babe, come on. We've got to get up. We're late. That's all. And death, her spirit returns, she's back up. Resurrection is not a problem for Jesus. When he wants to, he can do anything he wants. He's that powerful. Why did he give her something to eat? Here's a funny thing about Jesus. When Jesus came back from the dead, they were like, you're a ghost. And he's like, give me something to eat. He's like, what? And it's funny. He's like, do ghosts eat? And he's like, you know, 
And they're like, no, ghosts don't do that, okay? He's like, well, that's my point. Then later on, they see him resurrected, and he's at the beach side, and they're out fishing, and he's what? He's cooking fish. Jesus is totally into food. That's my whole point. Anyway, <laughs> why did he give her something to eat? Here's what I think it was. I think this is where miracles and medicine come together. Here's what I think he said. Hey, guys, I resurrected her. I didn't make her immortal. Can you give her some food? Thanks. The whole point is, hey, take care of your body. She hasn't been eaten for a really long time because she was sick. She was dying, so she probably didn't want to eat. Her body's weakened. I will do the heavy lifting. How about you take care of her now, right? And so that was the idea because everyone's going to freak out and talk all about that stuff. And the whole time she's like, I would like Rice Krispies, please, you know, and nobody's paying attention. He's like, everybody hold up. Get the little girl some Rice Krispies. We're good. All right. That's him watching out for little kids. Last thing you need to know is he just touched a dead woman. He touched a bleeding woman. He touched a dead woman. All these things in public. You're not allowed to do that as a rabbi. Does Jesus care? Not at all. Let's go with the last passage. Matthew 9, 27. Let's close out with this. I'll just make a few points as we wrap up. Matthew 9, 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. They don't know too much about him. They're hoping that he is that mighty conqueror in David's line, the Messiah they've been waiting for. They know that if he is the Messiah, he can do everything, and they want to be healed. So they're crying out after him, but he doesn't do anything about it. He makes them follow him. That's kind of rude. They're blind, right? All right? It says, when he entered the house, that's probably his house, which means it's Peter's house, because that's whose couch he crashed on. When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to him, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Well, that's an interesting question. Hey, do you think I can do this? And they're like, well, dude, we showed up. And he's like, yeah, 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 I get that. However, I'm not sure why you're here. Do you believe that I can do this? I want to know where you're at. And they said, yes, Lord. He said, all right. He touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. That's the problem line. According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. Yeah, that happens a lot. According to your faith, be it done to you. This is what is abused by the church, and this is where we get the stupid phrase, you're still sick because you don't have enough faith. Let me explain something to you. We don't use that phrase in this church. If anyone says that to you, you have permission to come get me. And I'll try to be mature this time and not say something inappropriate. (laughs) Here's the bottom line. Don't say that. You don't have the relationship to sustain that. You don't have the facts to sustain that. If God is saying, listen, there's not faith present here. You and I are not on the same page. I need you to connect with me, and I cannot heal you until that is present. That's between God and you. That's got nothing to do with someone else running up to you and being a moron and making some assumption from the outside. See what I mean? We don't make that kind of concept. What happens is, you may well be like Job, they are the most righteous, faith-filled, wonderful child of God ever, and the dad's going, no, I'm getting glory right now, leave him alone. You have no idea if that's what's going on. So don't go out with ignorance And try to say something like that. We don't use that phrase. Now, as an individual, do you need to engage with God and go, Lord, I don't even know where I'm at with this whole thing. I don't know if I have any faith at all. And the disciples cried out, increase our faith, Lord. Meaning, I don't have any faith. 
I'm totally lost. I'm bummed out. I'm frustrated. I'm discouraged. I'm scared. I don't have anything. You're allowed to engage with God. And he's saying, hey, I want you to check your faith level. Because a lot of stuff I would like to do with you, but you're not even walking with me. What are we doing here? You keep thinking of me as a genie. I'm not your genie. I'm your God. Are you allowed to ask that question? Yes. Are close friends allowed to talk to you about that? Yes. Is anyone else? No. That's inappropriate. Here's the point. Where's your level of faith? What if God wanted to do something in your life? Are you okay with that? You're like, well, I don't understand it. Well, most of us don't understand it. That's not the point. Are you open to letting God do stuff? Or you already got them figured out? Here's the problem. Later on, Jesus blasts Capernaum, the same region where he's doing all these miracles for not believing in him. Never underestimate the power of doubt. You can see a massive miracle right in front of you and still not believe. You'll always reason it out some other way. God will get ripped off of glory, and that's a drag. You go, well, that's not true. If I seriously saw something legit, right? Israel saw the Red Sea parted, and it was not that long afterwards they completely doubted God. I don't know how much bigger of a miracle is a wall of water, right? You walk through on dry ground, and the Egyptians were destroyed in it. That's kind of a big deal. So even if you saw that, you'd still find a way to get around it. If your heart's not soft, your heart's not soft. If there's no faith, there's no faith. Convincing you is not going to work. Our whole job here is to glorify God, to worship God. It's why we exist. So how do we make sure that happens all the time? Relationship. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. We love you and we thank you for your patience with us because, Lord, we sure can doubt a lot. We don't seem to believe a lot of what you say. We say we do, but God, from our head to our heart, it's really far. I just pray, Lord, that you would protect us from ourselves. I pray that you'd help us to grow up and mature. I pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified in this church, in our hearts, in our families, in our lives, in our decisions. That, God, that we do everything out of a heart filled with faith and let you sort it out. For, God, you are the king. You're the one that makes all the decisions. You're the good dad, and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.